0: Hey there, it's Shani B. Welcome back to The Mean Mind. On today's episode, we'll be talking about engineering, more specifically, product development. Then we'll go a little bit into the separation of manufacturing from the design team, and eventually we'll get to advice for young engineers. Now, what is product development, you might fairly ask. And product development is basically the management of taking a product from the concept to prototype to a final design and then eventually manufacturing and production. It's a super useful process because it helps you optimize the making of a product and not just the product itself. Now Chuck has been a coworker of mine over the years and we actually now work at separate companies but our companies are partners so we still work closely together. And Chuck has taught me a lot just through conversation about product development. It's been super useful for me in my own career and even in my own life as product development is actually fundamentally just about optimizing the design process. So it can be applied to solving goals in your own personal life. So that's basically why I thought it would be an interesting conversation to share with you guys. Now, I did a terrible job of introducing Chuck, actually not even a terrible job. I did not introduce Chuck when we had the conversation. So it's going to feel a bit like you're just being dropped in like a paratrooper into the middle of this conversation, and I do apologize for that. But I hope you can look past it and enjoy the episode anyways.
1: I think what people will need to know first is like, well, product development, isn't that just doing engineering work? And the answer is yes. And it's effectively a specialized subset of engineering management, really. uh, Um, the way I think of it. And, uh, I I think it's important to talk about if we want to start with why I think this is important and it's not really taught in most engineering curriculums as well. Yeah. So, Just interrupt me because I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go off the rails probably. But um, the thing is, is that, you know, we're taught as engineers, like how to not make things break. So we learn like fracture mechanics and strength of materials. And we learn how to make gears hold together and use bearings and apply all kinds of, all kinds of, all kinds of applied science we do, we do as engineers. Um, It's up to us to, to innovate. And that's not really what I'm talking about when product development, but the how do you coordinate the efforts of a team uh, to, to build something from the idea that somebody has to getting like product rolling out the door more than one at a time. And that's, it's the product development process. And I've always worked in industries that are medium to low volume. So for me, I'm talking about dozens or hundreds of things, A month. I mean, it might be, and and we've worked in, 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 uh, you know, industries where it's really small, maybe dozens a month, but the process still applies. It's probably a simplified version. But if you have dozens to hundreds of things flowing out the door a month, or even thousands, not hundreds of thousands or millions, like, like a iPhone or a, a car, you know, washing machine, those have to be like every bit of the design has to be just completely nailed down in order to not to run at a very high rate economically and not produce scrap. So let's, there we go. So let's start. I
0: So I, there, there was one thing that you said that I thought was interesting that innovating is not product development. Cause I, I do tend to think of a relationship and maybe, maybe you weren't saying they're not completely disconnected, but like I, I do, I almost see the purpose of, um, product development to make sure you're not inventing and you are innovating something that's actually relevant to the market and what people need. But maybe that's not what you were getting at when you said innovation you know, is not it's product not, development. And,
1: and I'll, I'll start to explain, um, but we'll talk about that as well. Um, I think that's more what I would call product management, but but both of them are, are really closely related. So would
0: you say product management is a subset of product development or? Are you, are you treating I, I, that as a different
1: one is figuring out how to build something? And the other one is figuring out what to build. Mm. So I'm talking about how to build. How ah. to, I already know what I want effect. I, I at least, okay. I at least know in the broad scope, what I want to build. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like in the end, but I know I have a pretty good idea when I'm talking about product development, because you're, you're taking this idea and turning it into a product rather than the ideation itself, you know, the, 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 um, and that's a whole different thing that's really cool. We could talk about that. Heck, we could do a whole, whole, whole topic talk about that, I'm sure. But so product, I worked at a company that made parts for heavy duty trucks. And that's why I've talked about like this hundreds to thousands a month of, of volume of product, because that's what trucks are made. Trucks are made like, 50,000 a year, 100,000 a year. Now, now the numbers might be bigger, but they're not like cars where they're a million a year. And if we're making something for a truck, um we've got a there's there's a there's a cycle that this company did. This company made all relatively inexpensive parts for trucks. Maybe things that cost less than $50, mostly less than 20. You could hold it in your hand and had maybe 10 to 30 parts in it. So, these were these were like switches and valves and fuel caps and people think, well, anybody can do that, but how do you do it for the best? How, how do you produce a new product efficiently and, and then wind up, wind up with a product that's cost effective as well? Cause you get beat by everybody else. As soon as you miss your margin by 10% or, or 20%, your product will go away super fast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so this company turned out to be really good at innovating new stuff, or I should say, managing the development and and innovating as well but again two separate things managing the development of new stuff and it basically wound up formalizing the process and it was greatly helpful to to young engineers who uh who who signed on because so as there's always someone leading a team of people if i'm going to design a new widget and by widget i mean like a, a i don't know let's say i have a motorcycle i need a headlight assembly for it you know it's got a box a Enclosure and some some pretty things on the front, like a chrome ring, and maybe it has uh, mounting brackets and things like that. But all that has to be designed. You have to figure out how to integrate it with every the work that everybody else is doing. And um, so, how do you how do you do that? How do you do that work? Um, let me see if I'm getting ahead of myself. I th- I think it's it's a multi step process, and the process winds up being being uh very loose in the beginning and very very orderly toward the end and toward the beginning is when you're just trying to turn the idea into an engineered product and the end is where you've had the engineered product and you're trying to turn it into something that rolls down a production line one two three without any hitches Mm -hmm. And, and and they take really different skill sets and that's the challenge that most engineers face because you if you're really good at the beginning, you might not be really good at the end, and the techniques you apply at the beginning don't, which is the uh, the formation of the, of how the product, the nuts and bolts of the product work, versus the formation of the processes. Um,
0: so, it, are you, so you're saying that like how to build, you'd break it down into how to engineer something so that it meets the requirements, and then how to manufacture comes after that with how to how to make it come off the assembly line super quickly.
1: And that team really has, if you really want to do that well, the team has to work together almost from the beginning. In other words, the person, even the person doing the, the, the nuts and bolts engineering, selecting, you know, what's, what sizes and shapes are these parts going to be? What are the fasteners? What are the techniques I'm going to use to finish it, to assemble it? They really have to at least know what happens on the production floor when it's going to be built. And not only that, but pretty early on in the process, they have to bring people in. So,
0: Because you're going to design in some amount of technical debt that you're going to have to pay back later in the manufacturing phase, but you and, at least want to be aware of how much debt you're accruing before you get to that phase and just get blindsided. Yes, by.
1: debt meaning things that you will figure out later on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or things <laughs> you, you have yeah. to do later on, whether or not but, you figure Yeah,
1: That's a great term. And not everybody, I, I only heard it you know, maybe five years ago or so. So yeah, things that you basically punt down the process to get to later. And there's some good reasons for doing that occasionally. Um, So I I envision the process as uh, like a funnel, or another person has described it as uh, an ever-tightening set of like handcuffs or shackles where your arms are free to flail around in the beginning and they slowly come together and pretty soon your two wrists are just joined together and you really can't do anything except very small uh changes up uh, there so most of the most of the processes we did were broken into phases like we like you mentioned um in the beginning you wind up with what am i going to build and and what does it look like? So if I'm building a mechanism, if I'm building a light switch, it's like, is it going to have a spring? Is it going to have a coil spring or a little beam bending spring? How do I make the contacts or the contacts, you know, uh, there's a little sheet metal parts that means that are contacts in a light switch. Do they get bent by which sort of process? Because I want to make them inexpensive. and And you might even, Take apart everybody else's stuff to see how they do it and go, oh, everybody's doing it wrong or right. And and we'll either copy what's right and we'll try to throw out what's wrong. That's benchmarking. Um so in the beginning, you're trying to figure out what to build. Um so I've got this. We're talking about a light switch now. Went from a headlight to a light switch. I guess there's a light bulb theme going on here, but um <laughs> so now I have the uh, light switch is a great example because it's probably 10 parts uh you know a couple of pieces of plastic a metal bracket to screw it to the box a, la- a wall light switch like a, like in a house uh plastic toggle um some contacts some screws uh, and and you got to design every one of those and you got to do it for 35 cents <laughs> so so you'll sit there and you'll you'll figure out what you think you should do and by the time you get to that there's basically a point where all right well one guy In concert with talking to a few other people in the company at the water cooler or in the break room or whatever, has figured out, I think, I think we can make money building this. Okay. So that's the initial concept phase of the product. And someone said, there's a market for a widget. We can do it better. Or or either we can we can innovate and and add a feature that nobody's thought of before, or we can do it for less money than everybody's ever figured out before.
0: And that's the what to build.
1: That is fades, the essentially to build, right. But, and I'm not really talking about how that I'm trying to avoid talking too much about how that happens because like I said, that's a big topic, but essentially one person that's the innovator he figures out what he wants to build. And he's like, okay, at that point, um, effectively, you have to decide whether or not you're going to commit anything more than time to the project right now. You've only committed like thought cycles. And if you're, if you're like me, a lot of those thought cycles happen in odd hours. You're busy sweeping the floor of the lab, and you and you start like Einstein. You start thinking about something else, or or uh, or you know, you're riding your bicycle, and you thought, oh, "Geez, this this thing is on the bicycle's a pain. Maybe I can make a new part that makes this work better." Or, or it goes on. But at any rate, suffice it to say that. Um, We've got an idea for a product. Now you have to decide whether you want to commit money to it. And that's, in, in the case that I worked in, usually there's a, a group meeting of some sort between the people who own the purse strings, the people who do the manufacturing and the people who work in engineering and the salespeople all get together and go, is this something we really want to do? Is this really worth our time and effort? Or do we have bigger fish to fry somewhere else? Because you have to decide whether or not to commit to that.
0: And that gets really complicated. Like at a small company, like where I'm used to working, where the salesperson, the head engineer, the head engineering person, and maybe even the manufacturing person are all the same person, right? So, like, it you you don't have as much of a distributed responsibility network where people hold can can honestly say that that. department even though it's one person that department is sufficiently happy with a certain process right like
1: so yeah yeah it, it like, is so you've worked at like small small companies like 10 people say right? yeah so in the 10 person company you're right it's only going to be a conversation with a couple couple three folks but they have to wear different hats while they talk in most companies i've worked for are less than say 200 people I think everywhere I've worked almost well not everywhere but 200 people is pretty much the limit for for where I've worked so no this doesn't apply in the fortune 500 world I'm sure it's a much different process but we're really going to talk about how I'm interested in innovators and startups and you know how do you go from startup to company producing something I think is what we're really here talking about yeah um so eventually the powers that be sit down and negotiate with each other and decide we're going to spend money on this thing or not. If they don't, if you're not, you move on, you do another idea, you bring it back. So let's say everybody thumbs up. We're going to commit. Someone came up with a cost estimate of what the project's going to be and believes that the project will pay for itself and make money in the long run. That cost estimate could have been done on a napkin in a coffee shop. It's just what it is, depending on who's taking the risk. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, now you're in the next phase and the next phase is, okay, well, kind of know what i want um you you need to build something or or you need to at least design something you might have done a napkin design you might have even decided that that things were something was really hard the way you wanted to do it so you might have even made a little a little proof of concept model but probably not in most cases most, most cases this is just an idea so now what you're going to do is you're going to look at the product and you're going to go can we do? Look at look at the basic subsystems or pieces of this product. And does this company or or its suppliers have the ability to make everything that we're talking about right now? Do we know how to solve these problems? Can we make these? And and will will we not have production difficulties or reliability difficulties?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, and that's that's really the hard part. That's where this is. Now we're gonna back go backtrack and and intertwine innovation and engineering because probably out of the you know there's there's a fastener you can buy screws everywhere um if you don't need custom ones that's fine but you might find like we've worked on little engines you know i can't find a fuel pump that meets our size and weight requirements that that provides the pressure that i need just nobody makes something like that and then you're stuck you have to build it hopefully you knew that beforehand Mm. Um, if not you might can the program at this point but at least you're going to take you're going to fail early
0: right you try and figure out all those things that you're going to have to design so
1: this is i look at essentially this is where my own personal method is look at all the core technologies required to make the product now so technology meaning uh you know is can this part be designed and manufactured with known art or can it be just bought even better, right? Screws, I'm not gonna ever make a screw, screw unless I'm absolutely have to, I'm gonna buy some kind of fastener. Um, but sometimes you have to make a custom fastener for something you really wanna do. Um, so is there, an, can it be bought? It, can it be made and do people, are there lots of folks that know how to make this? Can I just sub it out and, and really no fool and get what I want? Um, do I have to do it in house because it's so complicated or, or or so uh so outside of most people's talent intersection of talents because it might be a weird intersection of talents you know you have to do something electrical and mechanical at the same time and, and miniature can can i find someone to do that no i'm gonna have to figure this out at home at home <laughs> and, you know yeah i must live in the office if i think it's at home <laughs> um so that is the identification of the biggest technical risks of the that, product.
0: That's what I was going to say because you're you're also at this stage. You're still not designing the entire thing in detail. You're just trying to identify the biggest uncertainties mm-hmm. that you're gonna like, right? And you're trying to figure out all of the known unknowns in that's this right. in this phase.
1: That's right, and right? there are and, and if you're innovating it might be good that there's known unknowns because that means nobody else can buy this stuff. If you've got a product where everything on the list is stuff you can buy or everything knows how to make, everybody knows how to make it. There are lots of people. You're probably not going to have a kick-ass product because everybody else can do it already. Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into big company, the the bigger company meetings where the, the managers, the owners and the bean counters and everybody were like, we need to know exactly what we're going to do before we start. And I, and I just look at them and laugh. And they and, and, and think I'm being disrespectful when I say, if you know exactly what you're going to wind up with before you're done, then you can only copy what your competitors are making right now. You will never innovate if you don't say, well, we're going to stretch the envelope and do something that's never been done before. But we better be careful with our money and prove to ourselves that it can be done before we go whole hog into this project. So you do the hardest thing first. Absolutely. And they hate that because they're like, well, we might fail, no kidding, but um, you'll get killed in the marketplace if you do it the other way. You might kick butt in the marketplace if you do it this way. Mm. Um, just don't fail as too often, you know, and fail early. The cost of failure late is super painful and hard. You wanna fail as early as possible, It's mm. exponentially hard. Fail after you release the product, and it's a great way to bankrupt your company. <laughs> yeah. Um so identify the technical risks. Prove to yourself that those risks are manageable, probably by prototyping some things. Mm. Really really crude prototypes are fine at that point. You know, people call them breadboard or brassboard prototypes, but um if you can if you can prove to yourself that that oh yeah, now I've taken a bunch of different known arts, fused them together and created something new that nobody's done before. Good. I've, I've solved this problem and I know that I can assign a team of engineers and manage them and get this problem solved. Um, and they may fight me along the way cause they're going to say nobody's ever done that. But yeah, the one, the person in charge has to know. Okay. So we're about halfway through the second phase now. Um,
0: I'm gonna, so we so we've built a prototype at this point. That's what probably, proving the risks we, are manageable. Well, at, at
1: least a prototype like, of the subsystems. That yeah. We,
0: we, yeah. Yeah. You you're yep. Yeah. You're proving it by building something that represents each of the subsystems and saying yes, we can. This isn't the final solution, but it at least gives us the confidence to to know that we can we can continue wasting money or investing money investing on this money. project. You
1: bet. You bet. Um, And some money will be wasted. And, and that's a, that's part of the nature of risk and, and, and reward. Um, we'll, we'll we'll take an intermission from the second phase here. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what goes on in the second phase. If you're running the team (laughs) and and the reason why is that if I'm the engineering manager of a small team of guys, four or five people, eight people you can't really manage any more than eight people. Um, My job is to give everyone on the team enough leeway so that they can fail miserably, but not so much leeway that they can completely destroy the progress of my project.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they can't bring the whole team down with them. Right,
1: Right, right, right. So this is the, this is, and this is a fine line, which means that, again, some, some MBAs might fight this really hard. The manager, for the most part, has to be technically competent enough to to make sure that the risks he's allowing his team to take are not too big.
0: Mm. Um,
1: Either that or the manager has to have one technical leader that he has absolute 100% faith and trust. And he's risking his entire reputation on the success of the project on that one guy. And you know what? I have yet to meet an MBA. who's willing to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Like, like back to the fuel pump problem. If, if you're, depending on someone to solve the creative fuel pump solution. But if they catastrophically fail, that could bring down the entire engine product, it, right? It if would. you don't have a fuel pump, right. you're, you're screwed.
1: No. And we identified that as the hardest thing to do. So that, that's exactly right already in the beginning of this thought experiment.
0: So you, so you want to make sure that you're not, it's not, you're not too ambitious with your fuel pump, uh, with the problem you're trying to solve with the fuel pump, and that the person is capable enough to solve that problem,
1: right? So, as the
0: as the manager,
1: as the uh, the team leader, basically, or the the main the main designer uh, engineer, you've convinced yourself via experiments and prototypes that it is technically possible, or maybe just by doing a whole lot of math. If it's something really on. Un- un- uh, not hardware related, but at any rate, you convince yourself that it's technically possible, and and, and uh, now it's your job to make to manage a team that's never done it before, to to allow them to do something that nobody's ever believed to be technically possible, or or that's a stretch. But usually the problems are much simpler than that. But effectively, sure. that's what you're doing. So enough ropes so that they can screw up. Um, not enough rope so that they can just drag the whole project over a cliff.
0: So, so just for completeness, I'll just play devil's advocate. Why do you need to give them enough rope so that they can screw up?
1: No, that's that's an excellent question because, so, I think it goes along with um, team building, how to make a, a highly functional team, and and uh, my philosophy of highly functional teams are open failure open success public failure public success if someone does something that's awesome they need to get the full credit for what they did it's like darn it i didn't expect this guy to do this and he came through with a 10 time better idea than we started in this project and we're sure as hell using it because this is better than what i th- i thought we were going to do
0: uh-huh.
1: okay and the other the other also goes true that's a really dumb idea fred i know you tried it and it exploded and it's not working it's time for you to you know pack that one in and start over again and and uh yeah yeah and that's okay because the the beauty of open failure if it's a team if it's a if it's a place where there's open failure and open success is that failure is not a shameful thing failure is simply that i learned that this is not i i you might have learned that you made some wrong assumptions you, there might have been 100% consensus that this was the way to go, and everybody learned that this was just we we really bit off more than we can chew, and and we through through our own hubris we thought this was an easily solvable problem that turns out not to be. Um, everybody learns. And, and if you can create an environment where it's a learning environment, not a shame, oh, my goodness, don't ever make a mistake because we're going to lop your head off. If, you'll never innovate within a company that has the, the thing where everybody who fails gets, you know, gets beaten. <laughs> yeah. It's just ridiculous <laughs> yeah. because the, it's the nature of, you know. Now, yeah. So, so open failure, open success. The team needs enough leeway. Try not to allow anybody to really ruin the whole project. Um, and, uh, yeah, so some people will have lots of rope and some people will have a little rope, but hopefully the idea is every time they work on a new project or move to a new phase, the rope gets longer and longer. And that means you're developing your, your employees and yeah. And sometimes they get better than you are and that's okay. Uh, yeah, managers, a lot of managers are afraid of that, but the really good ones aren't. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's the, uh. Phase two intermission there about team team uh, leadership. So where were we with phase two? We had just figured out that we had stuff that we needed to to, to prove to ourselves that worked. We did that. So basically, at this point, you design something. You're gonna.
0: So does that so does that mean you just take the prototype, band-aid it up a little bit, and then take it into production?
1: <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. You're pushing my buttons. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think this, especially if it's like it's easy to easy to fall into that trap if you're in 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 uh, in software because a lot of soft well even software so there are some awful pieces of software that get written and published where they shouldn't have been just you know so and, and I I'm not super expert in that but uh, okay you flustered me with that awful. Well I was, I was just trying to
0: that. I was I was just trying to set you up to so that you could say why like I th- I think I have an idea of of what you're going to say for the next phase so I was trying to set you up for why it's important yeah, because uh, if you yeah, just I, band-aid I, the prototype there's all sorts of things that can go wrong right
1: Absolutely so yes we do have some sort of prototype um that that has proven I used to call it a that's a breadboard basically in the beginning, we had a concept, now we have a breadboard prototype. And, and we agree that all the technology here is doable. The company can bite this off and actually turn it into a producible product. So um, it might even be operable, fully operable, but it might be ugly. It might be the size of a washing machine and eventually it's gonna be an iPhone, but it's still a prototype. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, and
0: it, it might be much more subtle things too, like environmental resistance or mm. or performance uh, uh, specifications. Right. It, it's it's not always going to be these obvious blaring things. But if you've done your homework, then you'll know that, yeah, we actually have to do something more serious. Right.
1: right. So, again, we're at we're at the end of phase two, which is sort of the breadboard prototype stage or the, the prototype stage, we'll call it. And again, you should have a meeting of the minds and and decide again: Are we fooling ourselves, or or is this really a product we want to be doing? Mm. Salespeople need to chime in. Yes, we guys are still bugging me for this. No, we. While you guys were working on this, Brand X came out with something that just kicks your clock, cleans your clock, and yeah. And, and uh, this is and just throw this one away.
0: Human nature probably doesn't like to give up so easily. No. once they've started right so you probably have to like overcompensate and bias towards canceling the project more like you have to prove to you, like the burden is on proving that the product is still viable not the other way around of of just assuming it's it's viable
1: right and the sales guy hopefully will chime in and go i can't sell that now are you kidding Mm -hmm. Brand x has a product that's 10 times better than that already yeah while you guys were busy working they they did it in secret and came out last month yeah so you want to know that
0: or the engineer has to say you know what this might kind of work but there's no way we're gonna make a a real working product at scale that meets the cost or meets the performance that we actually need to provide right like the engineer also has to has to foresee a little bit into what's actually possible beyond the prototype. You're,
1: you're, you're right. And, and, uh, I mean, you could look at it this way. It could also kick this back. If if it really, if it went south and at the if you had this meeting and everybody sat down and goes, well, I don't think, I think what you made, I think we can, there's a couple of answers. One is that yes, we can make this product and we can make it for the price that we intended, but it's no longer the right product because something changed in the market. So that means you might have to either throw it away or go back to the concept stage again. If you're looking for something similar, you're at the wrong price point or the wrong feature set or, or the, the yeah. Um, but at, at any rate you have that meeting, the salespeople, the bean counters, the sorry, the accountants, um, <laughs> the uh, yeah, the managers, the owners, all the st- stakeholders, uh Get in there and and uh, hash it out. The, the manufacturing people, for sure, as well. Um, and uh, if it if everybody's in agreement, you move on to the next phase. And there's some kind of weighted process for doing that. But it's you know, depending on how big the company is, it's either an informal meeting or or a ranked you know ranked formal process. But that's not really that important. The important thing is you have the talk with everybody, and everybody's going into in the next phase eyes wide open. Uh huh. Um, so the next phase is actually doing the really, really nitty gritty detail engineering design, and mm. this is where this is where the handcuffs come out. <laughs> you had a pretty wild reign of of using almost any ideas and concepts you want up to this point, but you're going to start with with a pretty free hand, um, relatively free hand. But as you get further and further along the, the line path of the design your ability to make changes is going to get less and less and less and less and less because your changes propagate into changes in everything else. And if it's a multi-part or multi, multi subsystem product. Yeah. So change starts willy nilly in the beginning and has to, this is where the real funnel is. It has to come down to uh, effectively once you're, you're going from, I've decided to commercialize this product. I know what the product is. I've proven to myself that this we as a company can do it. You're going to go all the way to the, I'm going to make the first one on the production line in this, in this process. Mm. Um, so you're going, to, you're going to do two things at the same time. And so you really have two teams involved now. Now the, the manufacturing team and the, and the design team are effectively equal partners you're going to slowly hand off all the work from the engineering design to the manufacturing guys in concert so more and more things get fleshed out you figured out what the parts look like and what the processes are you're going to make and you know drawings get made and specifications get made and 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 uh, the process people take on more of that as well so they're going to define the processes and the process controls that sort of a thing or or the suppliers um, in that case so so this is the big funnel and uh it's really important that at this stage you pretty much have have you've started this phase with an idea of what what you're going to make that's pretty firm it's it's not it, you'd really you 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 hopefully by the time you enter this phase you know what you're going to make you know if it's red or black you know if it weighs a pound or a 100 pounds you know you know, if it costs a dollar or ten dollars, sure. Um, those are all really, really important things. And and to change the specification it now gets really expensive, especially once you've invested, because you're going to invest many, many people's time into making, designing parts, making drawings, testing parts, making assemblies, making assembly tooling, um, assembly process, documenting assembly processes, quality control processes, and yeah the list the list goes on, but so this is where this is where the funnel happens. So the engineering team will design parts, like I said, and uh, the the process team will start to pick that up and and run with it. Eventually, toward the end of it, in the beginning, the process team is assisting the engineering team, and at the end of this phase, the engineering team is assisting the design team. They're both engineers. the 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 design team is ass- assisting the process process team. Um, and you could imagine that in a car factory, there's a bunch of guys. Picture picture in the old days when everybody designed on paper. I know that's before your time, um, but there's a bunch of people sitting down at in front of their, at their desk and they're designing parts. They're drawing out parts. And these parts are going to be turned in. in uh, th- these drawings are going to be turned into parts on the production floor, and and uh, so they get they get walked down to the floor, and tooling gets made, and the parts get made, and eventually those parts get built in volume, and if there's a problem, the engineer is gonna assist the process people rather than the other way around. So that's, it's the handoff that takes place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's, I would say that the, the hardest part about this whole thing is the, the manager of this has to resist change. There will be incredible forces to add features because someone will come up with a new feature and unless it will be so expensive and you can wind up, you can wind up just chasing your tail forever because, Oh yeah, it's simple. We'll just add this. And it turns out that propagates into a huge bucket of bucket of labor to, to actually propagate that. Um, so change so, management in, in phase three in in the product development phase, the actual, the product and process, you know, uh, design and product design and process design development phase is what this is
0: and so i i guess i just want to clarify that my understanding based on what we said in the previous fit like in the when we were talking about the previous phase we said at every phase you want to be extremely critical about whether or not you should continue so when you're in this phase, if you start to think that you need other features or there's some other like you start to change the requirements, you need you you essentially need to say, yes, it's worth abandoning ship on the product we're on. The, like and we need we need to go back to square one and design a different product, but assume like. We need to we need to clearly to ourselves say that that's what we're doing, as opposed to just saying we're still in, in the the full detailed design phase and we're just going to add or change a few features and continue down the path we're on without like is is that. Part of the fallacy that that when you assume oh yeah we'll just make uh, we'll add a couple more features or this is actually what the product needs to do a lot of times there's very significant technical debt loaded into that package that you're taking on that can then take down the whole project
1: i i think i understand what you're talking about Um, i kind of went that's okay uh uh
0: like like, I'm I'm just trying to push back that sometimes it is a good idea oh, yeah. to do something else, right? Uh, so how do you decide uh-huh, yeah, when it's a good so, idea to adapt and, and be flexible and change? Like, is, is that just mean being honest about the fact that you, you have to take it from the worst case scenario of we should re, we design the wrong product. We need to go back to square one and relook at this full up from a, from a like a different concept.
1: Or like
0: worst case scenario. And then from there, if our current product meets a lot of those specifications on along the way, but like we need to, we need to like be honest with ourselves that we're, we're completely changing the project by taking on these other features.
1: Yes. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example, or at least I'll give you a, a straw man example of, of, of the problem I'm talking about. And usually, so I'm I'm normally I've been in product development and engineering design my whole career. So um, we there's a there's a there's a perennial tension between engineers who work in design and the salespeople and engineers who work in design and and the uh, the bean counters the, the the people who are managing money. And I I know I've said bean counter multiple times and no offense to the people who manage money because without that we don't get paychecks. I understand this and and it's it is important that job that's being done. Um, so some, it is somebody's job to say, no, that costs too much. And, and usually the engineer does that about features, but not about like labor, you know, uh, engineering development time. So yes, you need, you need wise experienced people making this decision and the, the struggle that I normally have as as the design leader and the development leader is a sales guy has a new idea. It's like I'm sorry. Yeah, I, great. That's a new product. Go, go work with the the the, the go work in phase one with somebody else, or because I'm busy doing this product. And if you are you saying we should throw this product away? No, I just want you to add this. Yeah, I understand that. Now, granted that there are occasions when that happens where we find out that there's something that we can easily do to change a product to add a lot more utility to it, and we're in the middle of design but but the,
0: the way I see it is if you're in phase, if you're in full detailed design phase and someone says, oh, we need this new feature, why you, if you're gonna do it responsibly, you need to at least take that feature and anything it interfaces with back to phase one, back to the concept phase, and then you need to expedite that feature through the prototype phase and then the full detailed design phase. And, and you need to when you say, OK, we're going to take on that feature, you need to say this is the time and resources we're going to allocate to put it through the ringer as well.
1: Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely like, right. And, and I've, I've never. I've never actually experienced a team that's that's like said, okay, we're going to put the feature in phase one. They it just basically you go through all those processes while you're sitting there in your in your third phase if you're going to add a feature. But yeah, and the most important thing is that when the person says, "I just need this one little feature change," it's like, look, every feature change negotiates cost, schedule. You're 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 changing the performance, so. Project management, product design is all about cost, schedule, and performance. They're giant opposing forces in in the engineer's world. So, oh, you're going to change performance. Great. I get to change cost and schedule. Well, no, no, you could just, it doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. If you're going to tell me to put a new feature in, I'm going to tell you what the new schedule and cost is going to be.
0: Which that's essentially like phase one is like. What's it going to cost to make it? Can we actually make it? Can we make money on it? So that's how you keep yourself honest there. And then phase two is like, can we actually make it? Is it possible? So that's the performance. So, and then if you get through those two, then it's like, okay, yeah, Yeah. this might be a good idea. And let's bring it into the full And people expect
1: to have it for nothing. It's like, it's so easy. All you have to do is, and fill in the blank, and I'm like... Yeah, that's easy to say, but on the other side of the wall where we are, there's implications of what you're asking for, and it's going to take time and cost money, and it's not zero. So as long as we agree that it's not zero, and and we can negotiate a number on both of those, I'm golden. Mm-hmm. Make all the changes you like, but if you ever ask me to make a change without negotiating, you know, a a, a performance change without negotiating cost and schedule, I'm gonna. I'm going to look for a new job soon if this happens more than more than a couple of times, <laughs> because you're basically asking for things that, that are unreasonable. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you go into a restaurant and, and ask for, you know, well, I'd like a baked potato and halfway through the meal, oh, can I get a steak with that too? And uh, yeah, I'm not paying anything more and I want it right. Damn. Now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it yeah. doesn't happen. It, yeah. It's so that's basically, yeah, it's an exaggeration, but yeah, no,
0: it, it, it gets the point yeah. across. Yeah. So 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 is that I think there's a little bit more at the end, but is that the meat of of the like is there any, is there another phase in your so mind?
1: There is and let's also in some some organizations split this this design phase process product design phase process design phase into two almost. So you effectively do all the design with the help help of the process team and then the process team owns it so the ownership changes formally in the middle. It's like okay we've got a full draw engineering drawing package and everybody signed off on it and design engineering and process engineering and now process engineering is going to take this on, tool it and make it happen. Um, okay. So that's that's how that happens. Um, and then what happens when you make tools and you find out that some of the ideas you had weren't so great ideas that does happen yeah and the answer is if if you didn't catch that in the previous breadboard prototype phase and and you and you made a mistake which mistakes will happen you you just have to eat that and that's where that's where okay we're going to have to make a new tool for this or we're going to have to add add more parts that we didn't think we needed
0: and so would the and or the with the solution to that be that when you're in the prototype phase and the development phase to to use all of the process, as many of the processes that will be the final process for manufacturing, like use the tools you're going to use in the final um, final, uh, production phase as opposed to doing other more expensive, faster... Oh, when like, I
1: was making the prototype, you mean?
0: No, so I'm saying like once... Or yeah, so while you're making the prototype and then after that, once you're making a full like you're developing a, a full actual uh like so I guess the prototype would be like a proof of concept breadboard. We'll call it the breadboard. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's probably more applicable when you're in when you're in the the first fully working prototype phase. When you make that, should you try and use all of the processes that you think you'll be able to use when you manufacture it at scale and at larger volumes in the end so that you get out those bugs? Yeah.
1: So you can see that this, this, we've put a, we've bitten off a big chunk of work in, in this, in this middle design and development phase. I mean, this is really the whole meat of product development. And you could, you could split this up. I mean, there are times when you might even, reprototype something like like, okay, I, I'm gonna make if you're gonna make bottle caps for injection molded bottle caps, right? You might have a tool that has twenty four cavities in it, make twenty four caps every time it does an injection shot. Well, if you're gonna prototype that, you might prototype it with a one cavity tool uh, made out mm-hmm. of aluminum that can't work more than a thousand shots, but who cares? It's, you're going to get a hundred parts to put on your desk and play with and hand over to the sales guy and go, is this what we're looking for? Oh yeah, that's awesome. No, that sucks. I don't want that. Make a new tool. So that's, that's every, 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 throughout every phase of this, you have to have good judgment and understand the appropriate application of technology.
0: Yeah. So that's, that's uh, another situation of foreseeing the technical debt when you're like, when you're when you're imagining the final manufacturing processes you're you're assuming the technical debt between that final process and how you're going to make the prototype, and you're saying, yes, we can take that on and we can solve that problem, but you're not always going to know for sure
1: that's right most that's right. if
0: you're innovating like you said, you probably won't know for a- sure.
1: Everything I've worked on always has a handful of bugaboos that happen in this design phase where you start to get to the process tooling you're like oh crap this is not such a great idea after all and 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 you run through and fix that you basically fast track the 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 slide back to okay did we do the right thing and and bring it back forward again but you bake that into every every schedule when you're an experienced designer you know that that's going to happen yeah um but we talked about like bottle cap and tooling you know Nowadays, people would be like, maybe I'll 3D print the bottle cap. That's great, but but what if the properties are very different? You know, 3D printing yeah. might used to be really non-isotropic where the layers didn't stick together very well, but now they're yeah. pretty isotropic. But, uh, you know, and bottle ca- and ejection molded parts have flaws in them like knit lines where the plastic goes around an obstacle in the die and then meets together cold on the other side and it has half the strength on that seam line. Yeah. Um, these are all things that again experience will tell you and and uh, but you have to have parts that fail or, or the usually the experienced guys how should I put this well this is one of the important parts about having these meetings uh, because the experienced engineers will when you're preparing to do your presentation for the for the for the meeting at the concept phase where you're presenting and saying should we spend money on this or for the meeting after the prototype phase where you you again you're going to meet with the management and 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 say should we take it to the next step and commercialize this the team's preparation for these meetings is really great because there's a lot of soul searching about am i going to follow my sword in front of everybody and they're going to find out because someone's going to be like hey we did that last year and it really really sucked oops right so you're going to talk to all the experienced folks and and try to gather knowledge. You to try to hoover up the knowledge from everybody else in the company before the meeting, mm. lest you go into the meeting and fall on your sword. Which I've only learned by experience, mind you. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. <laughs> do you do you have any stories? Not, specific not stories? Not
1: one, I, I had a great manager who. Uh, second intermission in uh, <laughs> in the development phase. Here, I'll do this here. Uh, yeah. So I had a great I had a great manager. Um, he was a temp actually, which was really wild. But we were in a company, this truck part company. It was growing rapidly. We went from I don't know eight engineers to twenty one engineers in three years, something like that. It was really really fun. Super bright guys, like five experienced engineers that just knew everything about everything, uh, and yeah, ex Caltech, JPL people. It was shoot really fun. Um, Anyway, so this, this manager, I went to a design review meeting for one of these phases, probably like phase two or probably, probably even after that. And, uh, I just got hammered. I just, everything I did and said came out wrong. I think it was actually when we were, we had commercialized already and we're trying to get to, 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 uh, to, to release tooling. So again, it was that split phase two where you do the design and then you commit the money to tool it. Okay. Um. And. They asked me questions and I didn't have answers for them, or I did have answers and I went into technical detail. And then they really started questioning me about the details of my technical solutions. And you can just go down the whole rabbit hole if you're talking to really smart people. And I came out of there, and Roger, or the guy's name was Roger, said, uh, "You fell on your sword in there." I'm like what? He's like, "It didn't have to go that way." I'm like, I I don't understand. I really didn't. I'm like, "What's What are you talking about?" I tried my best. And, and it was a really tough room. He's like, no, you, you provided the wrong information to the audience. Mm. The, the, the people that you were talking to didn't want to know what size screw you needed and whether or not these feds would work for this. Or, you know, it just, he it listed a bunch of technical details. Um, he said, they want you to put your hand on the table and tell them, look, I know that there's a few things that are upside down on this project right now.'" The team has a good handle on what they are and a plan to solve them and this is the schedule and cost that it's gonna be to get it out the door that's all they want to know we got it under control everybody's working together and this is this is where we are that's all they want to know and you just need to keep repeating I already told you that you know we're solving these problems this is what it's gonna cost we're gonna get this done and I tried it and sure enough nobody calls you on that. Once that happens, they're like, it's going to be okay. Yes. Yes. There's a cost overrun or a schedule slip, but I've got good people on it and it's well handled and we're 80% of the way there already. And here we are. Mm. Yeah. So they just want to be told that everything's going to be okay. So they can go back to their other things. They're worrying about running the company.
0: Right, they're not. But, they're but not they used, worried about what screw you're using or all but, the things that you told them. Well,
1: but they they are. They were worried way.
0: about the implications of that, which is what you weren't saying, right? They, the implications being that yeah, we're good to go, we got it covered.
1: Well, yeah, and, and and these were all the company was all run by engineers. So so the guys, most of the guys who were managing, used to run projects. So they did know like all the processes and 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 uh, things that you know design foibles that you you come across when you do this, so they almost like that. It's like, oh, I can go back to problem solving instead of the management that I'm doing right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Just you just want to keep them with their manager hat on. You don't want them to put their engineer hat on when you're in a design review a uh, uh, a team meeting like this. If it was a design review, it'd be different, sure, but yeah, so Roger didn't put it that way, but that was really the answer is make sure they don't let them put the engineer hat on
0: eh. yeah um so you so you were the you were responsible for the design. Like the, you were the guy saying, yeah, first you were the guy saying, yes, we are capable of building this. This is how we're going to do it. And maybe dipping your toes into this is how we're going to manufacture it.
1: Right. Right. And I was in this particular case, I was, you know, we had some screw up, you know, some, some problem that we didn't anticipate in the design. We had to fix it. and, That's, like I said, those are normal, but it's, you have to be able to manage those with grace. And, and that was, it was, I learned a lot about managing up from Roger. Roger was, was really, really talented in that regard. And he was, yeah, um, interesting guy.
0: So is that process that we just discussed, is that the process that you developed for, you at the beginning you said that you made a process for product development, I thought.
1: Oh, no, I mean, this is, this is not, this is like, I didn't make this. This is.
0: But what, didn't you say that you made some process for some part of this, or maybe I misheard you?
1: I've written the product development procedures for a couple of companies I've worked at, but it's, it's all some function of this. And actually a lot of this came from um, the big three auto companies back, well, at least in the nineties when I was working there, they had a thing called the advanced quality planning process or something. But effectively, it was like a five-stage model of bringing an idea to the production floor. And effectively, that's what we're talking about. I think it was called AQPQ or some PP or something or other. Anyway, but I think what what I've never heard talked about is, not never, but there's not a lot of, uh, this is not taught. As far as i know and most companies don't we're getting off we're getting off the rails
0: i don't think um, we are I okay. think. i think okay. we're i mean unless you, no, i that's didn't fine. One this more is exactly where i wanted <laughs> to go well <laughs> let's do the phase and then we'll yeah because yeah, that's yeah. exactly where i wanted to go next so let's finish the, so
1: what is what are we really talking about is what it is so the last phase is basically you you've you've gotten it all the processes figured out and you you run the first few items down the assembly line. And and basically after that, you have to run at rate at the normal production rate to prove that everything's going to flow smoothly. So, so it's to, to cover it all in a nutshell, it was basically idea concept and then idea to breadboard or concept to breadboard breadboard. We'll split the, we'll split the, the third phase breadboard to, to, to tooling design to, to part design. And, and then, part design to tool design and process design and they're intertwined. I don't want them; they overlap considerably. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally production, um, low rate to, to volume production. So, so now we were talking about, um, this is not taught as far as I know. Maybe it is now. Um, when I, 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 went to I, didn't, college, I, I went, didn't learn
0: anything about it. Yeah.
1: Either. So, so most companies, don't understand you, you hinted to this. You really, you pushed my buttons earlier and said, so you just buff up the prototype and ship it out the door. Right. Okay. (laughs) I've I've
0: read some of your, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So you've read a couple of my white papers. Yeah. Um, So this is, this is the problem that most innovators have because uh, uh, someone who's relatively inexperienced, but talented, We'll, we'll come up with a new product. Like we worked in unmanned aircraft and, and, you know, new aircraft, different design, never been done before, blah, blah, blah. You make one, you fly it. We're like, oh, that's awesome. I need to sell these now. But just because you made something that sort of does what you think it needs to do doesn't mean you're ready to make lots of them. Mm. And, and, you know, what if it was all <laughs> held together with spit and bubble gum? Well, maybe it was. It, certainly the engineer thinks it's a masterpiece that the creative engineer thinks it's a masterpiece because look, I had nothing and I bought this pile of parts. And now it flies, okay, well, the manufacturing engineer looks at it and goes, "You had a pile of parts, you tied them together with some spit and tape, and it flies and you want me to make them?" I don't think so <laughs> yeah, so this is this is the reason why we have a product development process is that that you're gonna force people to make stuff that's very difficult to build um and that. Question or point you make actually better points out. Why do we make prototypes? We make prototypes to simply prove to ourselves that we can actually make machines that do what we expect them to do, and we can make them hopefully with similar processes to what we're going to use in the long run. But maybe not. A lot of times we we are only interested in how certain parts interact, so we'll use very crudely built, you know off-the-shelf stuff. You could turn a bicycle into a, uh, you know, something else, uh, 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 yeah, a tractor, <laughs> if you welded enough bicycles together, uh, uh, and uh, and it might be the expedient way to do that, or a bobsled or something, you know, I, I, yeah. Um, so you repurpose what you have because it's fast and effective to prove to yourself that you can build these things, but that's a prototype, a a product is something that's that's a unified, you know, easy to produce, in quality at at rate, um, uh, product that's consistent.
0: It c- kind of like the ability to scale the the production of the mm-hmm. of the design, right? If you
1: and so so now we're going to go into that's a we're at a good we're a good point to switch to switch gears a little bit. Um, so basically what's wrong with American manufacturing?
0: <laughs> <Huh>?
1: <laughs> well, it, it's not American manufacturing. I, I should say it's, uh, it's over the course of my career, I've been like 30 plus years in engineering design. Um, I, I watched all the, all the manufacturing get offshore. not all of it, but a large portion of, of manufacturing, uh, work get offshore. And it saves a lot of money because there's there's tremendous cost benefits to uh, to low cost labor, but and it started with commodities, boom boxes, cassette recorders. Then it went to dishwashers and you know washing machines, and and it went to cars, and uh, it culminated in um, jets, Boeing basically offshored not only their I, I lived in Seattle for 30 years, and Boeing was a pretty, pretty amazing anchor in, in the Puget Sound area, and uh, something that everybody was really proud of. And by the time I left five years ago, or six years ago, nobody was proud of that company at all. It had already left, pulled its headquarters out, and it was in the middle of 787 debacle. Basically, what they did was they basically said, we're not even going to do engineering anymore. We're just going to write a few specs, And, and we're going to let design build contracts for all the subsystems. And they tried to build the 787 that way. And this is the rope. This is, this is the rope analogy in the worst, most gigantic fail possible. Mm -hmm. And it's like, we just gave them all the rope they needed, everybody. And then they found out that, holy crap, we got a whole airplane, but we don't have, I don't know what it was, but wings and, The fuselage section from one company doesn't fit to the fuselage section we bought from the other company. And the list goes on. It was just nothing but integration problems. And yeah, and they outsourced their batteries and they caught fire. And and, uh, eventually they didn't even fix the battery. They made a more fireproof box to put it in, holy crap. I'm flying on a 787 with with an incendiary device that's wrapped in a really good blanket so it doesn't set the airplane on fire. That's really nice to know. Now that's that that may not be the case now, but that's my my engineer's perspective on what I read about early on when the fix was in. Um so don't liable me. I'm not uh, I'm not slandering. I'm not privy to the actual details, but it sure seemed that way. <laughs> <laughs> um so, so yeah, and, uh, it just doesn't work. And it was all, this was all, uh, all driven by the best I can tell is best and brightest minds in the, in the business industry did this, you know, and they all got rich and, uh, and now what's everybody's like, maybe we need to bring that back because during the pandemic too, um, we can't build anything. Yeah. There, you know, can we get? We can't even make silicon here in this country. Um, so, because eventually silicon got farmed out to the to the third world or to the to, to the Southeast Asia because like, we don't need to make integrated circuits. We just need to design them and have somebody else fabricate them because that's a commodity now. But, okay, so lots of bad things happened, but. Nobody talks about the really the worst part about this whole thing. And I think this is, this is the worst part about moving manufacturing away from the design people is that in order to do innovative design, you have to understand what processes are available. In other words, what, what tools are in your toolbox in order to build things. And if you're half a world away from everybody who has the toolbox and you never get to look inside it, um, you will not know. In fact, if they come up with a new tool, you won't hear about it right away. And all the companies I've ever worked at, I can w- walk the manufacturing floor and find out every process and every tool that's used. And I've never met a design engineer that wasn't welcome walking down the engineering floor to see what's going on. And uh, sometimes they really surprise you because they did you ask them to build things one way, and it turns out that yeah, your ideas were dumb, and they came up with better tools later on, and uh, wow, and then they yell at you for not for spending too much money on stuff that didn't work, which is a good thing to get yelled at for if you're an engineer. Um, so divorcing uh, manufacturing from production just destroys innovation. It it you you can't do that. And the other thing that it is is there's a divorce now of of manufacturing from engineering and uh you're expected to just simulate everything sure just put it all on cad um and then we'll buy the parts and uh we'll put it together and it'll work and it never seems to work that way so i i uh had a really good friend that left the truck part company that i talked about earlier and uh he said uh he was working at a at a at a design firm, a well, well known design firm in Seattle that did contract design and manufacturing. They did things, all kinds of really innovative stuff. Um, but they would take on big projects like designing photocopiers or kiosks or all kinds of things. And uh he said, I said, so how's it how's it like working there? And he said, Well, I learned a really important thing. What's that? He goes, it's virtually impossible to design a photocopier without having parts on your desk. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly what they forced him to do is, Mm. is so he quit. He's like, can't do it. It's just ridiculous. You can, if you have a million people checking each other and, but it's super inefficient and you're much better off to have a giant pile of parts on a bench behind you while you're doing your design. So you can, you can, you can both use your real world tactical learning and, and your, your, visual spatial learning on the, on the flat screen. Now you'll probably have a virtual reality, but even so. Um, so yeah. you think,
0: do you think design and prototyping has gone too far too heavily reliant on CAD so that people don't have hardly any hardware and there's, there's all sorts of things that you learn from just like all sorts of things will just be blatantly obvious when you see the real hardware on your desk that when you're looking in the CAD model or in the simulation, you won't even even after you know that the problem exists, you might not even be able to see it in the CAD model still, right? Or
1: right now, mind you, that you and I work in small companies, and pretty much almost all of this talk is really small company talk. Um, big big companies like the automakers and even companies like Boeing, they've had effectively had VR for a long time, and they've been able to uh, do better job at simulation, but they have people. Just simulating things and 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 checking right so you put parts together there will be a detailed interference check to see that everything actually fits the way you expect it to but those are complex CAD rules that are not baked into the software package you basically have to write those rules and and develop the tools and in a 10 person company you don't have time to do that stuff you're going to build you're going to build fifteen parts get your assembly out the door and go and the easiest way to get that is to Yeah, nowadays, everybody 3D prints them. That's okay. Um, If if we're talking about simple mechanical stuff, I'm on board. Think really hard, put it on your screen, print it, see if it fits, go. But unfortunately, now I see people having to do five iterations of prints before they put things together. I'm like, no, you really only need two or three, not five or ten. So you just need to be a little more patient, leave your desk, take a walk, (laughs) come back, Get it, look at it with fresh eyes before you hit the print button. <laughs> That's my admonition to the youngins there that uh print too often and don't think enough. <laughs> okay. It's it's okay. I I yeah, I know. You're an uh, old old fossil here. So yeah. No, it's you will learn to be uh more patient with yourself. And uh yeah, I think I think it helps. Uh so, so- we talked about the fundamental problem of what I thought thinks wrong is that um design and process need to go together. You need to know how those work in order to really be able to innovate, especially in the small company world. Um
0: so how other than once your your book gets published. <laughs> how, how are people that was somewhat of a joke. How are yeah. how are people going to learn this stuff? Do they like is is it something you can you can learn from a book or I mean, I'm sure the answer is both, but like, I guess what do you see as the ideal curation of, um, a product development, some, like someone that's going to be a leader in the product development space and be able to be competent in most of it. Like, how do you create that, that person? I imagine they have an engineering degree and then what?
1: Yeah, how is that person created? I mean, every every team leader, effectively in engineering, is going to be called upon to do that now. Um, I think, it's small small teams, small companies, you know. Um, but if you if your company has less than fifty engineers, you're going to be called upon to to really understand what all this is.
0: So do you think, do you think that's just a phenomenon, a new phenomenon? It didn't used to be as much that way, but now smaller companies are a, they have the access to all the software and all the cheap tools that give them the ability to be competitive. Like they're
1: I'm not sure. I understand what you're, what you're saying. What you, phenomenon you, is new?
0: The fact that small companies and most, most small tech companies have to, um, know that have their wits about them in product development
1: yeah i i think based on my experience most small companies don't um don't have their wits about them in product development but they succeed anyway because whatever product they have was so damn innovative that even if it took you know a team of uh even if the team was complete chaos eventually they got a product out the door that people really wanted to buy because it was innovative. And that's good, I, I, but I think we could have we started, we could have, we're, we're gonna end with the beginning basically. And if you wanna do it a second time, this is the problem that most companies have is they do that once, They're like we know how to do this, no. You don't.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, we did it one okay. time. We, can we did it again. one time. We're
1: experts. Yeah, you're not. Okay, you came up with a really cool idea, and you you threw something together, and then you made a bunch of them, and they all broke, and you fixed a bunch of them, and then you came up with like Rev A, B, C, and D. They already went out into the field, and eventually you came up with a product that did everything and made you a whole bunch of money, and 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 uh, great, but it didn't have to be that hard. Um, I'm not even saying that the first time around you shouldn't do that. I, I think it's too distasteful. There's just some people say that, uh, liberals start companies and conservatives run companies. And it's the mindset. It's the, uh, it's the use what's tried and true as conservative and do absolutely everything differently than everybody else is is liberal because we might stumble onto something that's, um, that's better. So. The and, and so that that's um and I think that's really important that there's different effectively I'm saying temperament the temperament of the entrepreneur is different from the temperament of the manufacturing uh, lead because the manufacturing lead is not going to make changes willy nilly but the entrepreneur will want to mm. A- and you know you don't want to disrupt manufacturing you might want to disrupt design
0: yeah so I uh, I almost I see the I see the the value of this process. But I am curious how, like, how would you adapt it to a 10-person company? Right. Like, right? Because it seems to me like it's still relevant. It just needs to almost be, like, much faster. But you still have to go through all of the steps and respect the same rules. It's just...
1: For the 10-person company, this whole process boils down to understand you know, try to break your project up into a handful of phases that in the beginning manage risk and fail early and in the end um, manage quality and fail little. Um, And in the midst of all that what will kill any of this along the way is constant willy-nilly change in the direction of where you're going. you eventually have to decide what you're building and build the damn thing and not keep changing it. Um,
0: Unless you fail. Unless you fail. Right. But if you just say, because I have this new great idea, we're actually going to build this when you haven't even failed at the first idea.
1: And this is the problem because the, We talked about the temperament of people, right? And the guy who started the company is the guy with the great idea, right? And he had a great idea because he started the company. And halfway through, you're busy working on his great idea and turning it into the million-dollar product so that you can collect your stock options and get out of Dodge. He's got another idea that he wants to add to his idea. And you're like, get the hell out of my lab and go back to doing something else because I'm supposed to be getting this done to make you money. And, and this is the problem is that his temperament is not going to be suited to. Um, and if you say yes all the time, say you're, if you're the innovative temperament, the creative temperament too. Um,
0: then you'll just get, you'll and get- you'll
1: be sucked into the vortex and you'll never, you might not, you may get your product out, but you may not. The chances of getting your product out are lower. Uh, um, and I've seen it go both ways. So this is, um Yeah. So effectively, it's it's basically how the American government works. It's checks and balances. The 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 change liberals and conservatives have opposing forces, and and uh, uh, change, has, change in the actual structure of what the government is happens very very slowly by design, but mm. the 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 constant tension of I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it the old fashioned way. I'm going to do it the new way. I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way. is 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 constantly going on. That's and a good company needs to have that exact same struggle. The system needs to change slowly, and this is we sort of talked about the system, and then the struggle happens happens in real time. Uh, um, but if you don't have any, if you don't have any, a good manufacturing representative that represents the, the the calming force in the constant change world, then y- you might shoot yourself in the foot um yeah
0: yeah i think the applying this to a small company is is super relevant at least from my point of view because like that i think and a lot of people too are probably that's the exciting thing these days right Uh, everyone wants to be part of a small company a startup and do something innovative and have the freedom but still have the potential big upside and yeah and
1: just realize that when you make the first 10 of something that looks like a looks sort of like a product and works sort of like a product that you're not ready to build the product. Right. So- that That's effectively what we started out as and, and we're, we're getting back to is that that means that you've proven you can do it. Now you actually need to go down and do all the hard work. Um, and I would say if you're really an innovative creative type that, that doesn't want to be bothered with that, and I can understand there's a great reason not to be bothered with this, is to come up with a manufacturer find a find a turnkey manufacturing partner that can work with you and he that manufacturing partner will surely say if you change performance i will change cost and schedule every time you sit down and meet with him it's just like when you're getting your house built if you sign off on the plans to have your house built and then two-thirds of the way through you say no i don't want a tub i want a shower it's going to cost you and It'll be the same thing when you work with a manufacturing partner, but the good news is, is it doesn't come from somebody. It comes from somebody that outside your organization that you have less control over. And in a way that will force discipline upon you. Mm. Um, I don't know of pe- many people that have worked that way, but there are some turnkey manufacturers in certain, certain areas, certainly an electronic product. I think you could probably do that. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my warning to the to the innovator is and, and they're probably going, well, you're just uh... but I'm I'm right down the middle. I'm 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 neither I'm neither innovative innovator nor uh, whatever. I'm a moderate in the in the in the temperament spectrum of uh, of Wait, pro- production versus innovator.
0: So now we can really go off script. This is exactly why I'm curious why. I mean, I've asked you this before, but I'll, I'll ask you again, why, why don't you start your own company? Why? Because you, you have, you you can do, you can, you know, all the details, even down to something like counting beans, Mm -hmm. right? Like you're the, you're the kind of guy that can do any type of, or most any type of engineering as well as product development as well as team development, as well as, uh, business development. So what's Be- holding you back?
1: Uh, because,
0: or what did hold you back? Yeah,
1: yeah. No, it still holds me back. I think, um, I, I don't have my own company because I'm better at detail design and and the process of product development than I am at other things. And I would gladly start my own company if I had three people. I also, I, my motivation comes in spurts. So I'm, some people are like gung ho all the time. Some people are slow and steady and I'm like gung ho and then relax for a while and gung ho and relax for a while. And, and, and uh, it's fine for doing product development. It works pretty well because they they're, they're Times when you design and you're in the flow state and you're making track, you know, making lots of progress. And then, yeah, and then I, you could wait. But I need I would do it if I, I had a team, a team of three.
0: I, I have a theory that it's it comes down to. Like, I, I hear what you're saying, that you get your motivation. Maybe, comes, I'm, just, maybe I'm just
1: afraid. I'm, and I don't mean that in a bad way, fear holds back everybody for all kinds of things, right uh,
0: I, th- I that's fear. basically what I'm getting at if you i think I wonder if you if you wouldn't don't. pursue your curiosity a little more, yeah, and just probe it and start trying you know like like go down that road of thinking about your own ideas and putting them on paper and then starting to build prototypes eventually and and like just do it and commit like believe in yourself to get through that like break the ice that's the
1: fear so so fear is a giant if if there's one force that you can take control of in your life if you can take control of what you're you don't even realize that you're afraid of things now we're now we're just really off topic here this is great actually but
0: uh i think we're more on topic than ever yeah so
1: fear holds you back for all kinds of things um and and you don't even know it's 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 a driving force in your life and you start if you sat down like if you if you went out and just bored yourself for a day and and, and like went into the woods with no nothing and, and did nothing, that basically clears your mind. You know, if you really are bored for a day, like being on an airplane is the perfect, I don't bring tech. I often don't bring books. I will sit for two and a half hours on an airplane with nothing to do but think. And then I get great ideas. And and you can ask yourself questions like, well, what am I afraid of? Ooh, if If you're you're probably afraid of writing down what you're afraid of because you might not want to see what they are. But, but certainly I think fear is a big, big uh, thing in our life. And if you can get a handle on that, even once you realize that, that fear holds you back for certain things. Um, I, I was talking to my son um, about your age, a guy about your age and, and uh, I'd never, we had a hard, long, hard conversation about something. And I said, you're afraid, aren't you? Uh, you, you ought to just do that. I think you're afraid. And I've never told him he's afraid before. You know, well, we speak more like adults than than we have, obviously, because he's older. Um, and then I, I got off the phone with him and I immediately texted him and said, I want to be clear that just because I said you're afraid doesn't doesn't imply that I'm calling you a coward. Okay. <laughs> That's, there's a big difference between being afraid.
0: It's kind and, of the, and, it's the exact opposite, right? Right
1: right and he's like no i understand completely and i was glad to glad to get that um and he did wind up taking the leap that he thought he should do and uh it worked out well actually so in that case it was good um so why don't i have a company of my own maybe it's fear maybe it's uh again my temperament is such that i'm much more motivated when there's other talented people around me working i have a tough time stoking the flames constantly when i'm by myself um, so for example, in college, the best place for me to study was in the cafeteria. People would be like, you do what? There's people, there's activity all around you all the time. And the noise is high enough that you can't really hear anything. You just hear people talking mm-hmm. if you're busy working on whatever. And it's like, yeah, library, not so good. Cafeteria, easy. And not everybody's that way, I'm sure. But, um, yeah seeing people get stuff done is very motivating for me. Hmm. So,
0: yeah. I'm, yeah, I, I'll I'll take your answer cuz I th- I think it I think you you've admitted that you have the potential and it's just a matter of uh yeah. you deciding to, to push through Could that be. fear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: but but you you've also
1: I need to write you, the book. That's what I need to do. Yeah. You,
0: <laughs> yeah. But you've you've also uh somewhat naturally, like it, it sounds like through your childhood you learned a lot about electronics and then you studied mechanical engineering, and then I don't know at what point you first started doing software, but you did a lot of IT um and networking stuff, and like it it gave you a really broad uh capability set and
1: so now we'll yeah now we'll go to advice for the young engineer
0: yeah like i I guess i'm curious how you know because it when someone thinks about what they want to study or what they want to do not many like it's not very often that you consider the idea that you would do all of those things you normally say i'm i'm going to do one thing And then a lot of people, once they're done with college, they think that whatever they studied, that's what they do. And they don't have the ability to learn other things.
1: I, 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 yeah, the most important thing you can do going to engineering school is to learn how to learn. You don't have to learn anything in engineering school except to learn how to learn. And that's true of college in general, because if you only learn what you learn in college, you're screwed for the rest of your life because there's not enough information to be had there to get you going. You have to learn how to learn. Um, and that might even happen at a younger age, for all I know. Um, I was pretty pretty much, you know, I'm a person, being an engineer, most engineers are more biased toward things than people. And I certainly was interested in science and, and how things worked. And, you know, why were there stars in the sky when I was 11 instead of, you know, 21 or something um so advice for the young engineer is well i'll I'll kite from scott adams who uh who you'd think that the writer of dilbert wouldn't have any words of wisdom but he actually does occasionally anyway he's a strange fellow he'd probably admit to that uh he talks about a talent stack and basically you need to do more than one thing well and two or three things well is good um at least. And uh, I didn't think about that, but I was a fair, my father was an electrical engineer and I was an electronic hobbyist in high school. I played with cars and go-karts. So I went to college and said, well, I kind of know how electronics work already. I need to learn how to make parts that don't break. So I became a mechanical engineer. And uh, uh, knowing, knowing electronics put me in really solid shape to do to understand physics and everything's physics. So, so uh, I, I basically look at every problem as a physics problem, except for maybe software. Um, But uh, yeah. So that's how I got involved in doing all different kinds of stuff. Um, So
0: something I kind of came to uh, use as my working theory is that like in the first, in the first, like, 10 years of your career post college the the va- your compensation for the work that you do is yes the the salary and whatever benefits you get but the other massive compensation that you get is learning and skill acquisition and learning new capabilities and if you think about the salary that you earn and however much of that you could invest, and then the compounding returns that you could get on that, I think that if you think about the compounding returns of the skills that you can learn, in those first 10 years, the value that you can add to your life is much, much greater in the skills that you learn than just making more money and investing that money. And like for me, that looked like when I was considering jobs, I focused a lot more on the jobs that explicitly told me I would have the freedom to learn different things and new things even though I was taking a pay cut as opposed to just saying oh I can make more money here therefore it's it's better for my my future but Maybe. I feel like most people don't value yeah. the, the not only the skills that they learn but the the compounding returns on those skills
1: yeah so you, you, it's it's important that your first few jobs uh provide you great opportunities for to learn things. And as soon as you as soon as you find yourself stagnant, and you'll know after 6 months if you're stagnant in your job. basically you've learned everything you can learn and now you're repeated the same thing you're doing 6 months ago. That's when it's time to find a new job. Yeah. <laughs> and it could be in a year. I wouldn't recommend a young engineer change jobs more than every 18 months.
0: That's the thing. There is some trade-off you want
1: to but if you had a darn good reason to change jobs 18 every year and a half for the first three jobs, and you could tell a story to the next HR person you're going to talk to that this is why I did that. You know, I, I wasn't, yeah, I was, was, I pretty much hit the, hit the wall where I wasn't learning new stuff. So I moved on to a new thing and, and uh, you know, they might ask you, you know, well, are, are you going to, are you going to hit the wall here and move on? And like, If you provide me with opportunities to learn new things, I will be here forever. (laughs) If you want me to do the same thing over and over and over again, I probably shouldn't take this job right now.
0: And I think if you can tell that story, even if it happens a few times, like if it's pretty unlikely that it'll happen two or three times in a row where you learn everything you can and then you're stagnant within like less than a two year period, like it's unlikely that that'll keep happening. But if you can competently tell that story of I learned all these things Mm -hmm. and now I'm effectively coasting and I'm looking for something new, I think people will definitely realize. But it made me think of something that I'm I'm curious what your take on is, because like I find that when you go to a new company or when you even just talk to a different company, they see your value so much greater than the company that you're currently at. Like the company where you're at somehow forgets about all the opportunity cost of finding, of finding someone else. A,
1: a good or, company doesn't, but yes,
0: maybe maybe that's true. But even then, like it seems like a pretty ubiquitous phenomenon that you go somewhere else and you you get a better offer, or they um like assuming assuming so, you're someone who's so. growing your skills, right? If you're growing your skills over time, right. over the year that you've been at a company. They think of the person that interviewed when you got there, and then all of the skills they attribute, they almost like take credit for them and say, "Oh, we gave you those skills." Well, they did, but which they did, but when you like, you're you're on an equal, uh, you're on an equal playing field. So if they they can devalue those skills because they think they they gave them to you, but if you go somewhere else and you say, "Hey, I have all these skills," they're not going to devalue them because you got them from where you did. So I think, I think that's part of it.
1: I I think so. Uh, Some, some companies treat engineers as, as plug replaceable units and they think they can just buy more. Um, And they, I've talked to, again, we're going to use the bean thing. Um, I've talked to CFOs that have said, you know, we'll just get a couple more smart people and we'll be able to do this. And I, I, Here's, here's okay, so you get into this position eventually where someone in, in financial management questions the value of your engineering contribution. Um, just tell them this, your, your your experience at the company is an asset that is not logged on the books. It doesn't show up on the balance sheet. And and uh, if you think there's no value in that, fire all of my engineers and me today and hire a new staff tomorrow and see how well the company runs. Okay, so yeah, I think it's a lot easier to replace a CFO than an entire engineering development team. <laughs> I got news for you. Okay, because the CFO job, while hard, is is uh, is.
0: It's much more defined. Com- it's compact. Math- it's yeah. mathematical, right? It's, well, it's, it's it's yeah.
1: There's an art and a science to it, but but it's uh, yeah.
0: It's less arty, more. And you only have to have one,
1: right? You only need to hire one guy. Uh, so so but but people have called me in on the on the rocks on that well more than once and and uh, yeah like and see. the best if you if you're in a position where you've been wise with your money and every engineer should by the time you're five years experience if you've been good you have a year's pay saved up at least certainly by the time you're 10 years experience you should have at least a year's pay saved up you should be able to look the cfo in the eye and say you know if you don't think you're getting every penny worth of value out of me that you're spending me, you need to either tell me and tell me specifically what it is or just send me out the door. Mm. Cause I want to actually provide value for what you pay me for. And if you don't think you're getting it, tell me, but if we're going to have this argument now that you're telling me that I'm not worth what you're paying me, I will go out that door. If you like, would you like me to do that today? And I might not be alone.
0: That, that should also be something that new College graduates learn you need that that they're that they're worth something, and they're not they're not necessarily just worth what what their superior tells them they're worth, right? Like don't
1: buy the friggin' avocado toast and five dollar coffees for the first five years of your career. Okay, just don't do it. I'm sorry, but it's a wonderful temptation to do. Don't buy the new car. You're an engineer. Damn it, fix your old heap for the next few years. Um, Yeah, do that save up a year's pay in 5 years and you will have freedom in your life that you will that nobody that your peers will be jealous of for the rest of their life because they will be enslaved to their mortgage and their uh and their car payment and and their credit card bill and don't ever do that so that's more life lessons from
0: I've I've kind of gone the other way I I've, I've been I'm now less frugal because I was so I was the extreme end of frugal, of never eating out, and of guilting myself, but I...
1: Yeah, I'm not and, saying and it kill it, yourself, but but be, be wise with your money.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, I'm just saying I've, most people, I think, have to go the other way, whereas I, for some reason, I grew up watching my money and, and being super, super aware of every single penny, but I got to say, it's, yeah. it's an interesting balance to find, because at some point, you got to enjoy life and... And treat yourself like, I think the idea of, of spending your money on yourself first, as opposed to everyone else. And like, like taking yourself out to dinner or Mm -hmm. doing things like, um,
1: yeah. But Savings equals freedom. Especially if you want to start your own company, you have a year's pay saved up. You could start your own company now, if you have a great idea, or you could take a, pay a substandard pay at a startup company uh, for giant stock options and and say hey I can do that I've got money in the bank. So there, there's huge freedoms to be had by by even if you didn't come from a family of means by saving a 10 10 or 15% of your money and and uh, just developing put it away first. Don't start don't don't try to wind up with what's at the end of the paycheck. You have to take that and just just tell your bank set up an automatic transfer from your checking account to your savings account of 10% of your your payment every every time and uh now we're really getting into into interesting territory here but yeah and that would that will that will you you will buy yourself freedom in in 5 whole years and i know that when you're 25 years sounds like an awful long time but when you're 50 5 years goes by in a week so um yeah
0: so i'm we we kind of talked about most of the main points yep. that I had in mind, but I'm, I guess I'm curious if you had any others first.
1: So we talked about the talent stack, and you talked about you know getting good at lots of things. Yeah, and the worst I I, I have a, you look at my resume. If I wrote all the things I did, nobody believes them. They they don't, and they don't know what to make of me. So it was a giant.
0: Why? Because they're too varied, or they're too
1: varied. Every everybody. So I mean just. What did i do i did data acquisition instrumentation in college at the nuclear engineering lab and then i did uh i, d- I dropped out of college and i was a microwave technician and worked on you know multi gigahertz uh uh satellite receiver equipment and uh after that i was a tv repair man and after that i was a sound man for a band and developed custom audio equipment crossovers and, and equalizers and, and, uh, for our, for our own sound system and designed speaker cabinets and transmission lines. And yeah. And the list goes on, right? It's just all these varied things. And, and, uh, yeah, I worked at a company that made law enforcement electronics and I worked at a company that made truck parts. I worked at a company that made aircraft carburetors. I, I worked at a company that made unmanned aircraft. I developed fuel injection systems. I developed, yeah, it's just, it's too varied. People look at your resume and they go, "What, what do you do? I don't. I, you couldn't have done all these things. Nobody, nobody knows how to build an antenna and an exhaust pipe. I mean, what's wrong with you? Don't you have any focus?" <laughs> well,
0: do you think that's that's the the <laughs> yeah, same? That's that reminds me of the same thing that you were saying when you fell on your sword in that meaning.
1: Yeah, that, I put too much on my resume.
0: Yeah, and and really, you need to go one dimension about more abstract, right? I'm I'm the guy that can solve any engineering problem you need. Right. I'm the, I'm the, right. or, or something of something more abstract of I can like, as opposed to I, I can put these nuts and bolts together and do all these different. So
1: this is the, the problem of credentialing. You know, I have a bachelor's degree in engineering and, and, uh, and a PhD can, can walk into a company and say, I can do anything. And they'll be like, Oh yeah, of course you graduated with a PhD from Stanford. You can do anything. And, The answer is probably can, but darn it, there's a lot of people that graduated with a bachelor's degree from some public university in the Midwest somewhere or wherever, and uh, you know, with with, uh, uh, but they were very very hands on or had some talent that was that was different than everybody else, and they can get amazing things done as well. So it's not it's necessary. you know, I think the subset. There's a Venn diagram, and there's all the people who are super talented, all the people who are super talented that have PhDs, and they're probably the PhDs are mostly inside the circle of all the people that are super talented, mm. right? There's probably a few PhDs that even aren't super talented, but it's 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 hard to it's hard to tell to convince the HR people that. You you can do many many different things, and I, I agree. And the best thing is is to avoid the HR people if you can, and get your job through um, other engineers who work at other companies. And go, yeah, we're looking for more people, and we're having a dog dog of a time trying to find people. And oh well, I, why, don't, why don't we have a chat and see what you know? Can I go out to lunch with your engineering manager? Maybe we'll have a chat before avoid that whole HR thing and go up to um, you know backdoor your way at least to the first step yeah
0: so that that made me think of something that I tend to believe, but maybe it's i mean it's always easy to believe things when when it's not something that you are are in a position where you need to do or you would do, but I tend to feel like you can like college in and of itself is not that uh, necessary even even in engineering, you have it it's really a matter of motivation, discipline, and um, like you know if 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 you buy an Arduino and you learn to program it and then you buy a little engine and you design some parts for it and you try and fuel inject it and then you know you start doing all these very practical engineering exercises and you buy some books on them so you're reading mm-hmm. and and then you're you know you're learning fundamental theory and you learn about physics but you're not taking any proper college courses um the big problem i see is that you don't have a bs an ms or a phd and yeah i get that you're not it's it's it is un like it does take a, a extremely special kind of person to really get as many capabilities through, you know, the internet the basically. On. Yeah. Yeah. Or through the hands on, but like th- through teaching yourself. Um But I do think there is something to be said for the fact that there's, there's a lot of people out there who don't have the money or the means to go to college, but they're really capable and there's not really a clear way to,
1: uh, they're hard to find, but when you find them, they're super valuable. And so, so this is, it's, it's almost
0: like the curiosity thing that the, you just have, to, like it takes a matter of just try, starting and trying and mm-hmm. saying, Oh, I'm going to try this project. Oh, that didn't work. Now I'm going to try this project. Wall, don't quit your job. They're, like, not,
1: they're not afraid of failing. That's why. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. You gotta, yeah. you gotta embrace. I've, I've finally decided that uh embracing failure literally mm-hmm. is a much less painful and more productive means of, of going through life. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the idea of telling people to not go to college is, I mean, it's very distasteful to a lot of the older generations. Like a lot of parents hate that idea.
1: Well, there's no, unfortunately in, in the, in our world today, there's, Everybody thinks that if you don't go to college and you're say mechanically talented, you're just going to wind up being a truck mechanic or a welder or something like that. And mm-hmm. truck mechanic, super hard now, mind you, because there's data buses and all kinds of things you have to debug. People don't, people discount the fact that what mechanics actually get paid good ones are really hard, hard to find. Um, my, my take on that is that uh, I worked on t- a lot of teams with people who didn't go to college. That were we used to use the term junior engineer, which means basically you're doing ninety percent of what an engineer does, but you never got a degree. Um, they call them associate engineers in some places too, um, or designers if you're mostly doing like hardware design or that kind of a thing. A lot of software people I've been told um, don't necessarily have degrees either, but there is a limitation, and it it there the limitation is you it's much harder for that person to go back to first principles or for that person to go back. And I go back to first principles a lot when I'm solving intractable problems, problems that I really don't get. Um,
0: Well, so, I mean, I, I think it's likely that that's possible, but mainly because they don't necessarily focus. Like when you get a BS in mechanical engineering, you take physics and you take chemistry and and then you take thermodynamics and you take heat transfer, whereas you don't necessarily have to learn about those topics in order to fuel inject an engine.
1: Oh, OK. Right. But
0: if you did your homework properly, no, then you're... you would have done it that way. And I get that that's Oops, a, that's a big ask. Um.
1: Well, now I know what you're
0: getting. So at. I, I guess I'm just saying there is a way. I, really, what I think is the determining factor is the. I mean, yes, you got to learn first principles. There's no other way around it. But the the differentiator between someone who's capable of doing it this way, in my mind, is someone who's who's willing to say, "I can learn absolutely anything, mm-hmm. and I will learn it." This and. And not limiting themselves and embracing failure, such that they end up with all probably more of the capabilities. If
1: you have that attitude, you can you can do everything. There is there is no limit. You're up. You're absolutely right. Um, Especially now with things like MIT Open Courseware and you know Stanford and MIT and whatnot have all these physics one hundred one is online. Go take it. Right. And if you're really serious about it, and, and you know you could. Yeah, you could do it. Um, I think
0: I think the interest I think the interesting thing is there's not who who's your who's your guide. Unless you're really well read or you listen to a lot of the right people, you're not gonna know that you need to start with unless you're just a genius and you're not gonna know that you need to study from fundamentals. You're not gonna know that you need to understand physics at a fundamental level right. and all and all these concepts and build up or that like so it's almost like there is there is some level of high like um, educational guidance that's still needed. Like all the tools are there, but someone has to tell you,
1: like what? I mean, how how many times in the last four, three years we worked together? You know, we've been working with solenoid valves and d- brushless DC motors and all that. And how many times have I said? VL equals LDIDT. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's like over first principle because and over and over and over. every problem that we've looked at eventually comes down to VL equals LDIDT.
0: And and that's maybe that's um, that solves the credentials problem because a lot of the th- reason people want to go to college is so that they have the credentials on the resume that they went to college. But so if I, someone walks into your office for a job and they can they can state all these fundamental laws and equations and hired. Right, and they have physical experience of, of building things and breaking things, and see, like if if they have both of those things, that's I think the the fundamentals is really what the credentials means in practicality these days. That's
1: and and uh, I was a technician for a while at, as a college dropout, and engineers, young engineers, didn't know how to solder you know, electrical engineers and, and uh, mechanical engineers didn't know how tight to tighten a bolt without breaking it. Because you could feel that with a wrench if you're an experienced bolt tightener, as the case may be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Just because you understand that what physics is in, in the mathematical terms doesn't mean you have no diddly about what happens in the real world and how things get built. So, yeah. and, and most people who leave engineering school, you talk about what you learn in the first five years. If you can work for a manufacturing company and learn how things get made, um, that opens your mind to what what you can do. So,
0: But also not, it's important that you not limit yourself to saying, I'm a manufacturing engineer, right? Yes. You have to go into that experience saying, I'm going to learn about manufacturing processes so that I can move on into using that as a toolbox, mm-hmm. Right.
1: And you know, learn how to do some software. Learn how to do, you know, yeah. Build your talent stack. I fully endorse that. And but-
0: and that's the thing that the the st- the uh, orthodox method of going to school and getting a an engineering degree doesn't get you those physical hands on. Like, you know, you you don't learn a ton about n- not breaking screws. I don't even have to say no, right? it's, no, it's it's blatantly like- obvious, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was in college, some people, a friend, a friend had, a friend of a friend had graduated and went to work for one of the aerospace companies, Rockwell. Rockwell was still around, I think at the time. That's how old I am. And, (laughs) uh, uh, they, all they, they were working for one or two years and, and they, all they were assigned was like one little hatch at one fuselage station on, on the airplane. Basically it was a, one square foot piece of aluminum with half a dozen fasteners in it. And that was their thing. And they were working on that for a year and a half. And it's like, that person is not learning anything about engineering at that job. They're, they're learning how to draft and they're learning how to argue with people about whether or not, you know, they're getting their changes done that need to get done. And that's an awful, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the plug replaceable engineer.
0: Mm.
1: And that's the, I'll call it the, uh, I'm trying to find a word that's not too derogatory, but it's like the low-functioning engineer. It's like you have a very narrow focus. You work on this one thing, and you're expected to do that for the next umpteen years. And A, nobody wants to do that because they become a cog in a machine. It's like Mr. Incredible stamping insurance policies. Next, please. You know, Uh, yeah.
0: That that said, there is is the obvious caveat that sometimes there are highly specific tasks that are worth specializing in mm-hmm. right but it has to be a conscious decision i'm trying to think of one on the on the fly and i'm i'm struggling to think of a good one
1: well if you're a petrochemical you know engineer that works in whatever just fractional distillation or whatever i'm thinking about that because that's probably something i know the least about but maybe maybe yeah. that's pretty specialized i or was nuc- thinking nuc- like nuclear, nuclear en- engineering en- absolutely <laughs> <Exactly>. because <laughs> nobody's building anything nuclear anymore right so you, you know you go well, to the, that's starting to change i know but, <laughs> but you, yeah i you go to the navy and you you go to the navy nuke school and you learn all kinds of stuff about reactors that nobody else in the world knows and and yeah and and uh yeah so, but nuclear is probably yeah the most narrowest of of, of fields right now. Um, my brother-in-law is a nuclear physicist, and he worked for oil companies making um, tools that go down the well and blast various radi- radioactive rays and particles at the at the hole to see what's in the hole. Oh, but so you can get a job as a nuclear physicist, but you're you're building nuclear tools rather than nuclear reactors, right?
0: And and when you specialize in something like. Like any, when you specialize so he was highly in, in for anything and that's all you know, you're almost 100% dependent on the market need for that. <laughs> it's a good thing skill, he picked oil because right?
1: oil did, and in his career, he's retired just about now. Oil didn't go away, right? I mean, and he, well logging tools are, are ubiquitous and got more and more and more high tech over. So he picked a good, a good niche and he's a PhD. So, see, some PhDs, hand, hands on and everything. He used to tell me, Actually, really, I'm really just an engineer. Like, like that's so bad, really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's but, probably uh, better. Anyway, it was funny to hear, but he, he did interesting stuff too. Um, so yeah, we've pretty much covered covered ground. I'm I'm getting close to talked out, I think. But uh, okay, <laughs> thanks.
0: Thank you.